Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Unhedged. I'm your host, Frank Trois, and I'm really looking forward to this week's broadcast. Each week, we try to present you with the most diverse group of panelists and speakers that one can find anywhere. These range from theologians to portfolio managers, hedge fund managers, politicians, you name it. If they've written a book, we're going to have them on air talking about it. And by the way, we're not going to follow a scripted, organized discussion, but rather have a free-form discussion so that we can talk about the things that are top of mind, and more importantly, ask the questions that you would probably have asked yourself. Feel free to recommend the show to friends and colleagues, and with that, let's get on with this week's edition of Unhedged. Today's broadcast is brought to you today by Oracle. Oracle helps customers develop roadmaps, migrate to the cloud, and take advantage of emerging technologies from any point. These include new cloud deployments, on-prem environments, and hybrid implementations. Oracle's approach makes it easy for companies to get started in the cloud and even easier to expand as business grows. For more information, go to sohocap.com unhedged, and we can provide free cloud credits to our listeners. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Unhedged. I'm your host, Frank Trois, here again in a COVID-19 world, and quite honored today to have with me one of the leading fintech companies in Southeast Asia, and with us today is Kelvin Teo, CEO of Funding Societies. Kelvin, how are you today? Hi, Frank. I'm good. I'm, uh, I'm Kelvin. Uh, great to be on the show. Oh, fantastic. And Kelvin, how, how you know, just to, to pick on you a little bit, you and I have talked about this offline quite a lot. How how do we distinguish what you're doing now in the lending space relative to what folks have, may have seen previously in, in both the United States and in Europe? Sure. So I think perhaps give uh, would give a quick introduction about myself and how we arrived at this business. So my co-founder and I actually chanced upon this idea when we were studying, um, doing our master's at Harvard Business School. So before this, my my background was primarily in professional services. So started my career at Accenture, followed by McKinsey for financial services, and then finally KKR Capstone. I think what we realized is that this is an interest, uh, peer-to-peer lending or peer-to-business lending for our case. is a, it's a powerful and promising business model that can really solve the SME financing problem in Southeast Asia. And when we were starting the market, we realized that Southeast Asia has a few key characteristics that make it perhaps more conducive than any other parts of, uh, of the world. I think the two or three most important areas are, number one, um, thank, the regulations are a lot more conducive, perhaps thanks to the to being one of the latecomers in the space. Uh, fintech regulators uh, have been able to, to see what has worked and what has not worked in other markets like China and US and Europe and be, being a lot more proactive and uh, preemptive in terms of uh, erecting this uh, suitable regulations. So hence, I think in Southeast Asia, regulations are a lot more conducive. Uh, I think number two is that the market here the really needs financial technology to solve, to enable financial inclusion, perhaps more so than the other markets. Um, this demand makes the economics a lot more healthier, perhaps compared to other markets. And perhaps the third, third key factor that distinguishes Southeast Asia with other markets is that the competition level is relatively low as, as um, many traditional banks are still focused on corporates and that the fintech industry do have not seen a significant number of players um, by virtue of the fact that there are many people who want to do startups or 
uh, wants to be entrepreneurs in Southeast Asia. So because of these three reasons of economic structure, of of a huge demand, conducive regulation, and relatively low competition, it has made fintech a lot much more conducive um, environment for fintechs in Southeast Asia as compared to say other parts of the world. And if you can, I, I want thank you for highlighting it in, in terms of the three components, and I'd, I'd like to talk to each. And if we can focus first on the inclusion piece, because this is something particularly for our U.S. audience that that, that has been a new data point for them, just in terms of the size of what that means. So when, when you talk about inclusion, and, and again, you and I understand what it means, but for the benefit of our users, mm-hmm. what, what does funding societies think about when it thinks about inclusion? What does that mean for the company? Sure. So um, funding societies is a SME digital financing platform. So we give loans only to small, medium businesses. And these loans are typically funded by individuals and institutions locally and internationally. And I think, so given that we are focusing on business, uh, businesses only, we do not provide any services to consumers um, uh, per se. Um, so only, only small, medium enterprises. And in this case, we are really helping small, medium enterprises that are unserved or underserved by the traditional financial institutions to get uh, access to credit and financing. Um, and in this case, we, we specialize in short-term financing. So, uh, so finance loans that are as as short as uh, as thirty days for invoice financing, all the way to up to one uh, one year or twelve months. Um, really trying to help businesses to bridge the financing, the short term working capital gap, uh, that they may be facing. So I think based on t- um the research from World Bank IFC, the total financing gap for small medium businesses, um, as a percentage of GDP, is actually three hundred and twenty billion US dollars compared to other more developed markets um, at other parts of the world. So this, this 320 billion US dollars gap includes both the ones that we should be giving, um, but banks are not serving at all, as well as the ones that, hey, banks are already offering them a, a loan, but it is not sufficient bec- uh, for their working needs um, because um, the collateral that the, that the financial institutions demand of these SMEs um, is more than what, these SMEs have, and therefore uh, the banks or financial institutions are giving them financing below what they actually uh, what they actually need for their business. Let's break that down into the pieces because one of the huge things that you've done logistically is is the ability for these SMEs to adopt and utilize your your offering. How how was that in the early days? to convey to them what you were doing and, and getting them to adopt it? Because obviously it's technology driven. So what, what was that like as you were acquiring these SMEs and getting them to onboard to the platform? Sure. I think as per most of the other innovate, uh, uh, innovative disruptions to the industries, um, I think Southeast Asia is still going through the technology diffusion curve, whereas um, the innovators and early, uh, early majorities um, Perhaps in, uh, SMEs that are pretty more savvy or more open towards technology um, are attempting and ex- uh, the this new form of financing perhaps earlier compared to the majority. So I think for us, we took three key steps towards um, entering the market. I think that the first one was that was actively engaging the regulators. So I think noticing how regulations has a significant impact in the local development of financial technology. We were act- we actively engaged the regulators in informing them in terms of this is what we are doing. This is the what the legal councils have advised on in terms of overall licensing, and this is how we how we are safe uh, putting in safeguards for 
for SMEs as well as the crowdfunding individuals and institutions. So really getting the blessings and buying from the regulators. And to that extent, it has allowed us to, to win quite a bit of legitimacy. So for example, we were the first company to be licensed in Singapore, Indonesia, as well as Malaysia. And also the first, first companies to have received multiple government awards um, in support for financial inclusion. And perhaps one key tips to highlight here is that um, SME financing is being treated and supported by government um, a lot stronger than perhaps consumer financing because SMEs account for, for more than 50% of GDP and oftentimes a significant proportion of employment and, and therefore helping SMEs is considered as helping the economy. So SME financing is a lot more supported by the regulators as opposed to say consumer financing whereby it's typically associated with predatory practices um, and uh, over, over leveraging uh, of household debt. So that's number one, getting legitimacy in the eyes of both reg- in the eyes of regulators. Um, I think number two was that was really to actively educate the market because at that point in time, um, the online economy in Southeast Asia is still relatively nascent. So the only key activity that is done online is really e-commerce, and and even then e-commerce was perhaps three to five years old at that point in time, depending on countries that you're in. Um, so to that extent, uh, we spend quite a bit of time towards market education, um, uh, PR to really share with, with both the SMEs as well as the investors that hey, this is what is, uh, what we are doing, and this is uh, why it's good for you, and this is the risk and how we're addressing it. So one thing that we have done differently, perhaps compared to many other players in the domestic as well as overseas market, is that instead of saying that hey, um, to the investor, uh, Mister Investors, by investing into private debt, you can actually achieve a uh, high level of returns so and so forth. We were very balanced in terms of what we share with them that, hey, Mr. Investors, um, you will, we will be able to, we will, be, we will give you liquid and stable returns as a fixed income, but we will not give you double digit returns uh, relative to perhaps fixed, fixed deposit, local fixed deposit rates because if I make you very rich, I need to make some SMEs really poor. And the converse mm-hmm. is true for the SMEs whereby hey, um, we are not going to be cheaper than banks because this is an alternative investment product. It's an alternative invest financing for you. Um, but what we can assure you that is we are, we are a lot more flexible, faster, as well as uh, convenient for your usage. So that's the second thing. And perhaps the third one was that besides regulation uh, for legitimacy as well as market education, we, we do still form a team of, we still have a, a team of offline sale relationship managers to help even the most savvy of SMEs to, to onboard through the whole digital process. So I still remember there was once whereby we have to we have electronic signature and electronic signing, and we have to basically have someone to walk through the t- walk through the, the SME uh, owners in terms of how uh, how to do conduct the signing, and eventually we convert some of these walk walkthroughs into videos to guide the SMEs. So it's really by taking baby steps through uh, regulations, through uh, uh, education, as through as well as handhold guidance that we have managed to move some of the SMEs from offline to online. You, you said a few things there that are very critical. And if you don't mind, I'd, I'd like to just deep dive a little bit, because again, for, for some of our viewers, I don't think they fully understand just how large the market opportunity is and also pre, prior to, to funding societies, how underserved it was. So the if, if we go back to... Uh, because one, I, I remembered when I came out here, I was stunned by the, and it was my own ignorance to be candid, that uh, you know these SMEs could represent fifty percent of a GDP, mm-hmm. which was just astounding to me. And 
to your to your earlier point, how much education was also involved in in helping them understand what it meant to do this? And in other words, how much financial education, if any, did did you have to provide to them as they were starting to access this and and help them think about the implications for their business? I think it was quite significant. So I think we Funding Societies Monaco, we were launched in June 2015 in Singapore, followed by January 2016 in Indonesia, and finally February 2017 in Malaysia. So we have been around for about five years old, and I think it kind of hit um, main, uh, mainstream uh, attention perhaps closer to 20, 2018, 2019 or so. Um, and I think to the, and so, so in short, it took us almost three years of um, of constant education to the market to 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 gain attention to from from the from the mainstream market and i think to that extent we were very fortunate we took a uh, we took a few prong approach and we have been very fortunate to be supported by certain external forces as well so i think the first one that we actively do was pub, uh, was pr um so we were we appeared on and there was a point in time in indonesia where we're, whereby we were on the news almost every single day or every two days in wow. Indonesia media. And it's not, it's not, we are not talking about uh, a small publication. I'm referring to mainstream top top uh, media publications every mm. one or two days because at that time there was a whole fintech boom. And we were very fortunate that because of our, of our education in the US time spent as well as um, understanding of the local markets, we've been able to to gain quite a bit of support from the local media as well as regulators. And therefore, we, we appear on the news very frequently and that helps us to gain, um, gain at least some awareness um, within the market that, hey, there's this company called Funding Societies or in the case of Indonesia, we call our, we localize our name and call ourselves Modalku, which means uh, my capital. Um, so, so active PR was very important. I think the second piece was that, hey, after we get people to know that we exist and they come to our website, the next question is that how do we continuously engage them? And, and we basically do quite a bit of webinars as well as blogs. Um, webinars uh, and, and as well as offline, um, offline meet the SME or meet the investor sessions um, to, to put a face to a, to a product, to, put, to share more knowledge and understanding um, on, on these particular offerings that we, that we have. So that's the second one. I think the third one um, was that we actually went above and beyond to safeguard investors' um, capital or SMEs' um, uh, information beyond what the regulate, regulations initially required. So I think in 2015, 2016, one of the biggest issues in the industry was the blow-up of China P2P, um, most notably Yizubao, when there was a whole kind of Ponzi scheme uh, whereby the platform ran away uh, with the money from both investors and the SMEs. Mm -hmm. So what we did was that we pro we studied our local regulations and we kind of expected that, hey, for this business to be successful, we need to make sure that there's an independent third party uh, escrow that, that manages an escrow whereby all funds go through it, um, such that the platforms do not have access to this capital so as to mitigate the such platform risk that's, that we have seen in, the, in China. So because the industry was so early, um, we had no one, we had to spend a lot of time, we knock on almost every doors we could um, to offer such service in Singapore and finally got one company to agree to, to offer that service offering to us. So that, that adds significant cost as well as process to our business, but that also won us a lot of supporters um, 
um, and acceptance from both SMEs as well as um, investors. So it's, so it's really by active PR, um, uh, detailed education by webinar, online webinar, on, um, as well as blogs, as well as offline uh, sessions. And then finally, by, um, by backing up that promise of safety and security with actual real-world actions um, ahead of our time, that has helped us to, to bring us to, to more mainstream. Yep. And Cal, when you when you guys were first starting, and, and as you were getting to know these SMEs, how financially sophisticated were they, and and how are they today? You know, what was it like when you guys first started with them? I think when we first started with them, from a uh, from I think the investor lender side, um, in all candor, they were still relatively um, green in investments, even for the case of Singapore, um, considering that Singapore is quite an advanced economy and that. Um, they had with very good education, but even then, I think financial literacy was still, um, still not very strong in all candor. So when when we first started, we had to be extremely careful, such that even before there was any first default, we have actively told the investors that hey, we are we are we are doing good in the last six twelve months or so. There's no default, but this is a private credit investment. This is fixed income. They were bound to be defaults at some point in time. So please diversify your investments. So we even went above and beyond at times to see that, hey, when an investor has over-invested in a particular uh, SME loan, we'll call them up or we'll pick, or we'll WhatsApp them to say, hey, um, would you want to invest less than what you've committed to because diversification is extremely important. So that was, that was the time when, hey, everyone was just expecting to, um, to invest and, and, um, and not spend enough time on knowing, understand the product. And what we have done and done was to actually be a lot more conservative at that time in the underwriting so that we can build our own data, but also build our own track record um, while we educate the market. Um, so that was perhaps in 2015, 16, 17. Um, I think in, in the recent years, investors are a bit more savvy. So they will start looking at, hey, what is the fact sheet? Um, what is the company? That, what is the business actually doing? Um, what, how are the ratios? Um, they will they will spend more time really understanding uh, the risk and return and whether is the is the price of the loan being uh, uh, being set accurately reflecting of the risk um, and they will also be more active in terms of diversifying their portfolio. So one one tool that we have created to help investors to diversify their portfolio is a tool called auto investment, whereby it's oftentimes for busy investors usually if they have time they don't have money if they, and if they don't have and if have, they have um, uh, money, they usually don't have time. So what we created was this auto-investment tool whereby why not, based on your your diligence on us, you set the parameters of the loans that you'd like to invest in. So as and when any new loan that comes up that satisfies our requirement, we automatically allocate your, your money to those loans. So, so that can ease, we can more eff- effectively and efficiently create a diversified portfolio for you. So that tool turns out to be one of the uh, most popular tool and and um, and it was pioneering for the industry such that um, after we launched that tool, all the other platforms in the industry follow suit to, to launch uh, the same tool for the investors. So the market has evolved uh, quite a bit in the last few years. Um, and by having said that, I do think that it is uh, market education is a continuous process, which is uh, which is what we are continuously continuously doing, even in this particular COVID situation. Um, for the investors, whereby hey, what what how have we preempted the disease? What are we doing for it? Uh, in response to it, and what do we expect in terms of your overall portfolio investments? And how, as a company, where where do you sit in the value chain? Now, again, I know I apologize. I know the answer to this, and I'm doing this for the benefit of our users. But the 
the obviously you're in a position where you're you're sourcing and originating these opportunities on the SME side. Mm-hmm. You're you're able to qualify them. You have a very very strong underwriting process. But are are you carrying these on your own balance sheet, or or at the end of the day, uh, you know, is it on your balance sheet for a short period of time before these go off to the investors? Sure. So I think in terms of where we play in, our, in the value chain, we we act we are actually a complement towards banks. So I think banks typically like to offer big, long secured loans. So big meaning loans that are above a million dollars, long typically three to five years long because uh, in in loan tenure because it is too short a term. Uh, their cost structure is too too high relative to the interest that income that they will earn. If it's only a three months loan, they only earn three months of interest income. It's not worth their while. So big long and secured loans. So typically they uh, banks ask for collateral. Um, and but the problem is most SMEs do not have collateral. For us, we kind of do the opposite. We specialize in short, small, unsecured loans. So short meaning loans that are below twelve months because um, we assess the uh, we evaluate the SMEs based on their cash flow uh, using data science as well as credit uh, credit uh, underwriting um, or credit assessment. And it's very hard for you to predict the the cash flow of the SMEs beyond twelve months. Hence, our tenure is always short below 12 months, small, usually less than $1 million, averaging about $150,000 to $200,000 US dollars, um, and uh, unsecured. So we don't ask for collateral. We ask for information um, and data so that we can assess them, but we don't ask for for for, um, for collateral. Um, perhaps the, only, the, the most pertinent collateral is receivables. So we have three big product lines, term loan, Trade finance, um, as well as finally micro loans, um, for, for e-commerce merchants as well, um, on, in the online economy as well as SMEs in the offline economy. So, so primarily small, short, unsecured. Um, I think where these loans are typically funded by both crowdfunding as well as balance sheet. So, one thing that we have learned by studying the US, European, and Chinese players is that it's extremely important for us to have a very diversified sources of funding. So, to that extent, about um. Half of our book is currently crowdfunded um, by both individuals and institutions, meaning that we do not take any um, financial risk uh, per se, but we do take reputation risk if um, any loans go default. Um, and the other 50% is on our balance sheet. Again, it's backed by both individuals and institutions. Currently, the individual and institution mix is approximately 80-20. Uh, but these this balance sheet funds are basically used to invest in uh, micro loans that are perhaps uh, for, for use cases that are perhaps not suitable for crowdfunding, but also um, for funding sources that prefer to invest on us uh, using balance sheet. Um, so, so to that extent, we have diversified our funding sources to meet the needs for both SMEs as well as investors. Um, and this typically these institutions um, that that fund these individuals that fund us includes um, retail individuals like um, a university intern or a fresh graduates, all the way to the CEO of or C level of MNCs and banks and finally to some level of retire, some retirees who are looking for fixed income. And when it comes to institutions, it covers the whole range of banks and asset management, uh, local banks and um, interna- international uh, asset management houses, as well as impact funds from Europe um, uh, and uh, and Korea. Um, is, that a, is that a big focus for you in terms of having more institutional breadth? I mean, at, at the surface, it would seem the more institutions you had there, the more depth it would give you to, to do more underwriting. I mean, yeah. do, you, do you see yourself supporting the crowdsourcing model or in moving to more of an institutional model going forward? 
I, I do think that we are moving towards institution uh, institutional model more. But having said that, I, we do think that there's still a, a lot of potential for the crowdsourcing model still. Um, so a lot of our folk, currently most of our crowdsourcing investors come organically through us. So 80% of our lender, our investors come through organic channels. So to that extent, we'll continuously drive that um, in terms of PR, market education, word of mouth, and so forth. But I think the institutional piece is something that we are stepping up our gears on. Um, and that we do think that to the extent that we can source institutional capital from, say, U- Europe, uh, US, as well as East Asia, such, such as Japan and Korea, it will actually allow us to reach to more SMEs um, than, than where we currently are at right now. And, and, and if we extend that a little further, one of the interesting things in the US, as, as you know, was that there was a whole cottage industry that ended up developing in, in this space for funds mm-hmm. that, that, were, that were dedicated to this. Do you do you see that type of phenomenon happening here, where you you might see dedicated funds focused on, you know, can, you know, having this type of portfolio exposure, or or do you do you think do you think it'll it'll morph into something different? Sure, I think there have been some credit funds that have been set up in Southeast Asia, uh, focusing on this uh, area. Um, so to my knowledge, there are two three of them. So it's so there is a early size of of this supporting uh, cottage industry, supporting um, alternative credit, um, but still at a relatively early stage. And I do think that that will be a major piece of the of the ecosystem in the near in the near term, um, as 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 the industry becomes more mature after having developed for approximately five years or so. But we also see that hey, increasingly international um, banks and um, impact funds are paying increasingly more attention to Southeast Asia, given the likely impact. Um, of their work um, from the overall economic and social perspective, but also because um, it is expected that Southeast Asia will emerge out of um, the pandemic perhaps a lot stronger and sooner compared to many parts of the other world, of the world. And and with that as well, the again to pick on our American listeners a little bit, I think the the what I what I've seen is that for Americans when they just can't seem to get their arms around how significant the SME market is here. And historically, when they think peer to peer, the knee jerk reaction is to think the consumer, mm-hmm. you know, in, in terms of, you know, sourcing a lot of these consumer loans and then pooling them and syndicating them. But the irony of this is that actually you're you're in the sweet spot of the market because candidly, from a credit standpoint, these these are probably easier to underwrite in, in terms of, of what's there. And and part two is it's it represents a relative to these other economies, a disproportionate amount of the GDP, mm-hmm. which, which, you know, one question I'm curious about, I, I, to, to your point on a, on a post-COVID world, regrettably, what has happened in the U.S. is that for all the stimulus money that's been injected in the system, it has not made its way down to the people that, that really need it. Mm-hmm. And here, what, what do you think the implications would be? And again, I, 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 don't want to put words in your mouth, but but given how proactive and how strategic some of the countries are here, and in particular Singapore, but part of me feels that in a in a post COVID world, if I was injecting stimulus in the system, the banks aren't going to be able to help the SME market uh, immediately. It's going to be firms such as funding societies that can that can help these entities. You're going to be in the best position possible relative to having a larger balance sheet to disperse those funds in a like manner across all of these different countries and regions. Is that correct? Yes, I think 
to be, to be fair, from a, from an overall government perspective, Southeast Asian government seems to have acted a bit quicker um, towards uh, stamping out or towards containing the, the virus. And to that extent, um, I, I do, I, I, we, are, we are quite grateful as, uh, from, from that perspective because we do think that the economy will, will actually rebound a bit earlier uh, thanks to early actions. And that gov- the government has been pumping quite a bit of resources into the economy uh, to support both the SMEs and consumers. And uh, perhaps the two most notable examples is the Singapore government um, conducting, basically crediting, um, uh, providing us job credits um, to offset certain salaries to, a t- to the local, local employees as well as the Malaysia government, who is um, basically back co-lending on, on our platform to the SMEs. So, so we do think that from an overall uh, segmentation perspective, we can play a major role in complement with the banks to, to channel funds um, to the local SMEs. And this is what is something that's, that's happening. But we do think that with COVID-19, this pace will accelerate even more uh, yeah. as, um, as the, we... As, uh, regulators are realizing that yes, uh, the banks play a major role in this process, um, but the segments that fintech like us serve and reach and be able to underwrite is very much complementary to what the what the, the banks are are doing, and in fact, perhaps more efficient and effective towards reaching the segments that they would like to um, that the government would like to reach to. So to that extent, um, we are seeing a shift in terms of government's um, support towards uh, plugging us into such such programs. Yeah. Yeah, you would seem to be the 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 entity that has the best and most robust information on this particular particular segment of the economy. So I would I would think that uh, it would behoove everybody to have you on the right there front and center in that. And 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 one last question before before we wrap up. And again, we we could easily have had this conversation for an hour. So thank you for letting me rifle through a bunch of con uh, a bunch of topics very very quickly, but. You are also applying for the Digibank license uh, in Singapore. Yeah. And maybe for the benefit of our listeners, can, can you talk a little bit about what that means in terms of widening the aperture of, of what you would be focused on? And then B, geographically, what does that mean for you in the region? Sure. I think um, at the COVID, one implication of the COVID-19 is that it has actually prompted the digitalization of the economies in Southeast Asia um, as well. And one of the initiatives that um, the, the Singapore government has embarked on um, uh, is actually the launch of the host of the digital bank license, both a full bank license as well as a wholesale bank license. So the full bank license allows you to serve, um, to do everything essentially, whereas the wholesale bank license allow you to do everything except for serving consu- retail consumers. So we are one of the, we, we have basically submitted an application together in a consortium with um, with Singapore Powers or SP Group, which is the the, uh, the government-owned utility company in Singapore, um, followed by Xiaomi, the, I, the leading handset manufacturer and IoT company, as well as AMTD, the leading investment bank in Hong Kong, um, in, in a joint bid for the digital bank, wholesale digital bank in Singapore. And I think what it allows us to do is to provide a full suite of services to support SMEs from the start, when they first start, uh, first um, incorporate as a company, we can immediately launch, offer them a bank account alongside with the utility account. They will, in, they will inevitably have to sign up with SP Group, um, help them to grow by providing short-term financing, 
subsequently scale to the region by providing them international financing, leveraging on our Southeast Asia footprint, and finally listing, which is where AMTD can help them to grow. And of course, any digitalization or increase in IoT productivity work uh, can be well supported by Xiaomi. So it's really true by offering a host, uh, a host, uh, a whole suite of products to support the entire life cycle of the SMEs. That's why we have. Uh, we've applied for the wholesale digital bank license in Singapore. And the goal of this license uh, of us is to not use this license to just serve Singapore, because Singapore is a relatively small, um, small economy, but to leverage on Singapore's strategic location as a financial as well as a trading hub of the region to serve the rest of Southeast Asia. Um, and we do we do hope uh, are looking forward to the results of the license in second half this year, 2020. And this is also in conjunction with the CVC that we have raised. Um, um, so far, we are, we are very fortunate to have both SoftBank and Sequoia um, as our lead investor in our previous rounds and as, and also further supporting our recent Series C, uh, C race, which will support not just um, um, the whole digital bank license application, but also bringing, uh, strengthening our technology as well as distribution towards profitability. Well, that's fantastic. Colin, it's a, it's a phenomenal story. And, and again, I think we're going to be having a few more of these conversations as the year progresses. And, and ironically, to your point, I think the company and yourself are extraordinarily well positioned going into the second half of this year in a post-COVID world. And, and again, on behalf of our listeners, I want to thank you again today for, for, for taking the time and uh, talking with us today. Thanks, Frank. It's a pleasure. And on that note, my friends, thank you again for tuning into this week's episode of Unhedged. Please be safe and healthy, and we'll look forward to talking with you again next week. Take care.